Welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, November 17th. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, as the city passes its 2023 budget, some residents are concerned over funding for a Greenway restoration project. Starbucks workers on the Capitol Square strike for union recognition. Walker-appointed Natural Resources Board member Fred Prane is back in court over text records. And in the second half, the past, present, and future of the United Way of Dane County. The Madison Metro School District passed their own budget and stress relief through handwork. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction has released its annual report card on most schools in the state. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, about 84% of public schools either met or exceeded state expectations in the 2021-22 school year, but that's down from 80%, according to the newspaper. The reports are based on several indicators, including standardized test scores and graduation rates. 84 school districts across the state received a lower star rating this year than last. State officials say many schools are still recovering from the pandemic. The report found the Madison School District, quote, met expectations. With the winter respiratory illness season coming early this year, the Wisconsin Health Department has announced that they are updating their free at home COVID testing program. The department announced today that starting immediately, all Wisconsin households are eligible to place an order for one free test kit every month. Each test kit contains five rapid, sorry, rapid antigen tests. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the state has distributed over 11 million COVID tests. That number does not include the over 750,000 at-home tests delivered directly to households. You can order your free monthly COVID tests at sayyescovidtest.org. The Dane County Board of Supervisors is looking to expand a program to get kids involved with local government. The Youth Governance Program first began in 2012 and offers opportunities for youth leadership development in county government. Once admitted to the program, youth are assigned to one of the board's committees or commissions where they participate in meetings and provide an advisory role on legislation. Currently, 13 young people are admitted to the program each year. At its meeting tonight, the board will consider whether to expand the program to 18 students and whether young people can participate in closed session meetings. The Madison School Board will review a grievance filed by the former principal of Senate Middle School. The Wisconsin State Journal reports Jeffrey Copeland was fired just days into the school year, leading to staff and parents calling for him to be reinstated. An open records request later found that Copeland was let go after he accidentally left a voicemail on a potential teaching candidate's phone. In the voicemail, Copeland complained about the candidate's accent. Copeland has already filed a grievance letter against the district, but was denied reinstatement. The school board will take up Copeland's grievance at its November 29th meeting. And now on to today's top stories. Budget season in Madison has come to a close. The Common Council finalized the 2023 budget last night, including some amendments and rejecting others. 
One project left in the budget to the chagrin of Southwest Side residents concerns the future plans of an overgrown greenway. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more on why neighbors are concerned over the future of the Sauk Creek Greenway. The Madison Common Council passed their 2023 budget last night, providing the funding needed to open the Madison Public Market, expand the CARES program, and provide a small pay bump to city alders. But in public comment this week, Southwest Side residents took the city's engineering division to task over funding for a greenway restoration project. The Sauk Creek Greenway is an approximately mile-long waterway around Old Sauk Road that directs stormwater downstream. Hannah Moelnitsky with the city's engineering division says stormwater mitigation is the main function of any greenway. Greenways are just one of many options that we have. That could be a pond, a retention pond, um, a greenway, um, and then there's obviously so many other options out there, but truly when we have a greenway and it's eroding, we want to make sure that we're maintaining it because it is more of a form of green infrastructure and it helps mitigate the stormwater through that area. The Sauk Creek Greenway has been there for decades, and when neighborhoods began popping up around it in the 70s, it was an incentive for new homeowners. However, the wooded area has seen its fair share of challenges over the past few years. Erosion is causing sediment to wash into nearby Wexford Pond, which now requires dredging due to the eroded sediment. And erosion has caused the trees surrounding the greenway to fall into the water, causing new water channels to form and catalyzing even more erosion. In 2018, the city began planning for a renovation of the Sauk Creek Greenway, hiring Tree Health Management, an arborist consultancy group, to conduct a survey of trees in the greenway. They found that of the over 5,500 trees surveyed, 40% were invasive buckthorn or box elder trees. These and other low-quality trees are preventing new tree growth and creating stream blockages that back up the flow of stormwater. The overcrowding of shrubs and trees is preventing sunshine from reaching the ground, leaving the ground layer mostly composed of bare, exposed soil. The consultants determined that, under current conditions, the high-quality native oaks in the Greenway, the youngest of which are 80 to 100 years old, will die off without being replaced. But before the city could formulate a plan on what to do with that information, Madison experienced historic flooding and the project was placed on hold. Now, the city is working to restart the process of developing a plan and have included $3.2 million in the 2023 capital budget to fund consultants and staff time to draft a plan. Neighbors have been wary of what the city has in store. The Friends of Sauk Creek is a community group of neighbors to the Greenway who are opposed to the city intervening. Over the last two months, the group gathered around 350 signatures for a petition calling for environmentally friendly stormwater improvements be made to the Sauk Creek Greenway with full public disclosure and input. Gwen Long is a member of the Friends of Sauk Creek. Going off of information from the city's website on the 2018 survey and consultant report, she believes that any major reworking of the Greenway would be heavy-handed. Um, so it does have some maintenance issues, um, so that we do want done. But the plan to dredge the creek twice as deep and then grade the banks out 30 to 40 feet on both sides um, and taking all the trees out 
which was their plan in 2018, removing all the trees um, for a, almost a 80 foot or more uh, wide swath along the creek um, was not, and then also putting in a bike path was really not acceptable um, environmentally for the um, environment, for the wildlife, for the neighborhood, for the community. Um, it's just that was not a good plan at all. Molnitsky of the engineering division says that that's not the current plan because there is no current plan. Once the floods hit in 2018, the city temporarily shelved the project and as of today doesn't even have a preliminary plan to present to the public. That, Molnitsky says, is why they haven't requested public feedback on the project yet. We do have the conversation with our community. We want to hear the feedback. But right now, because there was all this information that was started in 2018 and some time in between, you know, our community has been kind of waiting for some answers and we're working towards that. We have the funding now secured in the budget. And now in 2023, we will be able to kick off our public engagement. Once we had something to chew on, um, we're going to revisit all the work that had been started and then present uh, an official proposed preliminary design in the spring. Some residents say that there's a lack of trust with the engineering division, a repeated theme during public input on the budget this week. They point to the Greenway restoration of Tree Lane about a mile from Sauk Creek Greenway, where almost all the trees were removed. Moalnitsky says that while they don't have any specific numbers for how many trees will be removed from Sauk Creek, the two areas are vastly different. She says the trees involved in Tree Lane were invasive and aggressive species that were both not conducive to storm water management and bad for native habitat. Sauk Creek, meanwhile, has more native, high-quality tree species, meaning that, again, while they don't have any specifics, they intend to leave as many trees as they can. Ultimately, Moalnitsky is asking for the neighbors to be patient. We're sharing everything we can, so stay connected to the project page. Join us when we uh, announce and schedule our public information meeting. Stay engaged. Keep an open mind. Read up on what we have out there. We have a lot of really good information, including the difference between this project and Tree Lane. So hopefully we've provided quite a few question answers for people that we've heard so far that we're trying to share as much as we can. We have a lot of educational resources like story maps and that specifically focus in on the tree survey that we did, um, or not that we did, but the certified arborist that was hired through the city. Last night, the council passed the $3.2 million to restart the project on the last day of budget negotiations. Molnitsky says that the engineering division will begin meeting with the neighbors of the Greenway in the spring after they have drafted a preliminary plan. Public engagement on the project is expected to take the bulk of 2023, with construction not beginning until at least 2024. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Today is Red Cup Day at Starbucks, but if you headed to the Capitol Square location to get your favorite holiday drink, you might have had a big surprise. Starbucks union workers are on strike across the country, on what is usually one of the busiest days for the company. WORT reporter Aaron Ashley was on the scene earlier today. Tell me what democracy looks like! This is what democracy looks like! Coffee! Coffee! 
Red Cup Day is one of the biggest sales days on the Starbucks company calendar. Customers can get a free reusable plastic Starbucks cup when they purchase one of the company's many festive holiday drinks. Today, though, is a different story. More than 100 Starbucks locations from New York to California are picketing in what some are calling the Red Cup Rebellion. I'm currently standing just across the street from the Starbucks coffee location on the Capitol Square. Just outside, crowds of people holding union protest signs and megaphones and chanting. That voice you can hear over the megaphone leading protest chants belongs to Chanel Biami, the lead bargainer representing the state of Wisconsin with the union. Between chants, I spoke with her about the union's goals and concerns. What sort of terms is the Starbucks Workers Union hoping to achieve with the, with the company? Better, better wages, consistent with different rules and regulations, and overall just a better work environment. Starbucks workers at this location voted to unionize in July a move Starbucks contested with the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB. Since then, Starbucks Workers United has been negotiating with company executives, trying to determine the terms of their contract. Chanel says that these negotiations have not been in good faith. Has Starbucks agreed to meet with any of you? Uh... Yes, they've continuously agreed to meet with us, and they have stall tactics. They're coming in the room once they see that we're, we have a negotiating committee that's on via Zoom. They refuse to bargain with us. They've bargained with other places, but now all of a sudden, they refuse to bargain with us once they see the Zoom camera going. Chanel says that the company has dug its heels on this point. In other places, they actually done bargaining on Zoom. So now they come with the star tactic of not bargaining in good faith with us because we have a committee via Zoom. I asked her why she thought that this was an issue for the company. I think it's just a star tactic, and if it wasn't this, it would be something else. A Starbucks spokesperson tells NPR that remote call-ins to bargaining sessions are non-starters, since recording sessions are illegal under NLRB rules. Union workers responded to these statements by saying that they are only trying to include union members in bargaining sessions, which they claim is within their organizing rights. With negotiations proceeding slowly, Starbucks Workers United decided to strike. By scheduling the strike on one of the company's traditionally busiest days, the union is hoping to show Starbucks that they mean business. Among the frustrated workers walking out today is Evan McKenzie, a shift supervisor and union organizing committee member at the Capitol Square. We've been basically uh, asking for Starbucks to bargain with us. Uh, they organized like a bargaining session back uh, in late October, um, but they showed up about 20 minutes late um, and left within three minutes, as they did with all of the Starbuckses across the country that like they agreed to bargain with. Workers are feeling like Starbucks does not take them seriously. They're not, it's not that they aren't, you know, just driving a hard bargain. They aren't bargaining at all. Despite the pace of negotiations with Starbucks, workers at the Capitol Square location are energized. Today, the atmosphere uh, is really, really good. Everyone is chit-chatting with uh, members of the community. We have politicians out here. Um, and it's a bit of a cold day, but that, oh, and that's just a honk from uh, some, some government workers who are supporting us. Um, but it's a really cold day, and we are all out here having just a blast. We're hoping that this shows Starbucks that we are organized across the country and that strikes will continue to happen if they refuse to bargain with us. Starbucks workers are not new to company pushback. The effort to unionize this summer was full of allegations that the company was using illegal coercive methods to prevent workers from voting to form a union. Evan says that, so far, he hasn't seen a strong pushback from the company since the strike started this morning. 
here at our store, we have not seen our manager today, and we do not expect any uh, retaliation uh, during the day today. Previous disputes between workers and Starbucks have been mediated by the National Labor Relations Board, and Chanel expects that it's only a matter of time before they step in again. Do you expect that the National Labor Relations Board is going to get involved at any point? Yes, and I'm sure and I'm hopeful and very hopeful that the ruling go in our favor because we've made every single attempt to bargain with them in good faith, which to no avail on their behalf. If the NLRB does offer to intervene again, it will likely meet legal challenges from Starbucks. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. It's now 6.22 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. When refusing to step down from his position on the State Natural Resources Board after his term expired, Walker appointed Fred Preen, claimed that the decision was never political. But text messages obtained through digital records requests showed that he had communicated with conservative lawmakers, asking them if he should remain on the board. There are still texts to be found, however, and yesterday an environmental group took Prane before a Dane County judge in order to get those texts. WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with one of the attorneys on the case. So, Adam, just to sort of start things off here, yesterday, Midwest Environmental Advocates uh, went before a a Dane County judge over what you call a, a breach of open record laws. So just for just for some background, we'll get into the case in a second. But walk me through uh, what happened that led up to this lawsuit. Sure. So uh, on June 29th, uh, 2021, so almost 17 months ago, uh, Midwest Environmental Advocates submitted a uh, an open records request to uh, the DNR, the Natural Resources Board, and uh, Frederick Prane, uh, seeking communications that he uh, had related to his uh, decision to stay on the Natural Resources Board. We limited that uh, that public records request to the previous year, so that would have been June 29th, 2020, to June 29th, 2021, uh, to kind of connect the dots uh, leading up to the decision to hold over and, um, you know, what happened after. Uh, in response to that request, we received emails, uh, but did not receive any text messages, which was something that we'd explicitly asked for in the, in the records request. Uh, we then followed up with uh, Department of Natural Resources and Natural Resources Board staff uh, to ensure that the that you know a search had been conducted for, for text messages, uh, and we're told that uh, no text messages existed, uh, and so that that was where where it stood for a bit until in a an entirely separate records request uh, we received a a text message record uh, where. Uh, Dr. Frederick Prane had uh, communicated over text related to his uh, tenure on the Natural Resources Board. And so from that point, uh, we had a belief that additional records likely existed and uh, filed the the current action, the current uh, litigation case um, at that time. 
And so now, uh, sort of leading into that, now sort of walk me through this uh, newest lawsuit that went before the Dane County judge uh, yesterday. Why do you believe that Prane uh, violated the open record laws? Right. So so we knew that there was one message that existed, uh, and the, the nature of that message, it was an unprompted text message sent from uh, Frederick Prane to another Natural Resources board member, led us to believe at least at that time that that more likely existed. Uh, but we, we had no indication other than that. And so we, we filed uh, the current action uh, in Dane County saying that we believed there to be uh, more records and uh, that we asked that the court uh, mandate that they be searched for and, and released. Um, in response to that, uh, Defendant Prane filed a, a motion to dismiss, arguing that the the what we sought uh, weren't actually records under the state's uh, public records law and additionally that he was not an authority was not subject to the the public records law uh the judge dismissed that uh those arguments uh in march of of this year uh and then from that point we've kind of slowly been receiving messages there was a response to some of our discovery requests that led to an additional message uh, exchange between uh, Dr. Frederick Prane and uh, former Governor Scott Walker. And then over the summer, we received even more messages in uh, response to a forensic inspection protocol, uh, an agreement signed by all parties for how a third party uh, digital forensics firm would review uh, extractions from Dr. Prane's phone and, uh, and then after some internal review be processed and sent to MEA. So since we filed suit, we went from having one message uh, before litigation to having uh, a couple more this past May to having now now dozens uh, that we received in, in August, September, and October of this year. And then even, even yesterday in the uh, oral arguments, we learned that he had not completed uh, all of the searching all of the terms of the forensic protocol. And so now we still believe that there are even more records out there um, that we believe that the judge should should order. But it's been a, a slow kind of trickle in followed by a rather significant deluge of of records over the over the last year or so. Well, Adam, do you have just any any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me on this? Yeah, so I think one of one of the the points that is most important to make is that it's been a long process. Uh, you know, I said we've we filed this over over 17 months ago, uh, or, or we we filed the public records request over 17 months ago. We're over a year into litigation, and uh, we were heartened to hear uh, Judge Mitchell say yesterday that he believed that he could get a decision out soon. We believe that you know the law is clear on this respect, and that we are entitled to those records and we believe that records still exist. So um, we look forward to, to seeing the decision come out and believe that it, you know, it'll come out in our favor, releasing the remaining records and, and soon they'll be uh, viewable by the public. Well, I've been talking with Adam Voskel with the Midwest Environmental Advocates about the lawsuit that they've brought against Natural Resources Board member Fred Prane. Uh, Like you said, uh, the judge is expected to rule over this case and uh, find a final decision, in his words, quote, shortly. So until then, Adam, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
every other Thursday, we air an excerpt from the Out of the Box podcast, which is focused on supporting current and formerly incarcerated people and their families. This week, host D-Star sat down with Renee Moe, CEO of the United Way of Dane County, to share both the history and the future of the organization. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with Renee Moe. For the people that don't know you, can you give us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, uh, I'm here because I'm the president and CEO of United Way of Dane County and a big D-Star fan. Um, (laughs) I'm a Madison resident, and uh, I really love serving our community. So where did you grow up? I'm a military kid. I grew up all over the place. My dad was in the Air Force and met my mom in Taiwan, born in Tampa, Florida, on McDill Air Force Base. And we lived in Germany for a few years and Okinawa, Japan for a few years. And when my dad retired, we moved to a little town called Northfield, Wisconsin, mm. about two and a half hours north of I-94. Wow. So I remember one time you were telling me that you were in radio before. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and give us a, a tagline <laughs> one, one time for the one time. Oh, United Way of Dane County, the power of many working for all. How's that? <laughs> that <was good. laughs> So tell us a little bit about the United Way and what role does it play in the community? Yeah, so United Way has uh, an organization that is 100 years old this year, and we really think of ourselves as a change catalyst. Our job is to mobilize the caring power of the community to create change that lasts for generations. We really anchor around education, financial stability that allows for housing, as well as health, And we work to coordinate nonprofits in a holistic, two-gen, multi-generational approach so families get what they need. We're also known for civic engagement. We really empower folks to learn more about the needs in our community. And if they want to make a difference, to give, advocate, or volunteer to make those changes because we know it takes every person to make our community even better. So 100 years. Wow, that's very impressive. So what are some of the milestones over the 100 years, like some of the programs that the United Way has implemented or they have championed? Well, when you think about the founding of United Way in about 1922, it really was a way to coordinate philanthropic efforts. So there were a lot of business members who were uh, of the community who were asked to give money and they wanted it to be done in a way that was more efficient for fundraising and more effective for where the dollars went in the community. So that's really where our foundational start began. If you fast forward, United Way's then called community chests, like on your Monopoly board, were very instrumental to helping in the war efforts. So when men were off in World War II, a lot of labor unions, United Way, women and children, you know, really there was a lot of of, uh, support with faith and nonprofits. How do you work together to help make sure families have what they need? That started a little bit more of the focus, not only on how people can give money, but what to do with it. I would say in the uh, 70s and 80s, payroll deduction became a much bigger deal. So people could, in their workplaces, give a little bit in every paycheck. And uh, that allowed for more dollars to go to community nonprofits that happened all across the country. Here in Dane County, in the late 90s, this is where things to me start getting really even more inspiring than those fire decades. Because it was about that time where when we were talking about academic opportunity gaps, really seeing that our black and brown students weren't reading at proficiency, uh, especially comparatively to our white students. That's when the community really mobilized around some big community goals. How do we help more students be successful in literacy? And about that time, we started focusing less on the campaign goal as our success measure and really focused more in on community change as a success measure. So Schools of Hope was really the start to all of that. We set a community goal, mobilized folks, actually 
focused in on reading scores. And we saw 29% of kids not reading at proficiency at the beginning, down to under 4% not reading at proficiency. Super powerful. And that really started the whole impact agenda and collective impact movement across the country, really, that I'm really credited with starting at United Way of Dean County and my predecessor, Leslie Howard. So that was Goals of Hope. Um, and then the agenda for change really anchored around a number of community goals. Much like we had said, how do we focus on literacy? We started focusing in on early childhood readiness, in addition to education and graduation rates, homelessness reduction, violence reduction, more long-term support for people with disabilities and those who are older, and uh, healthcare access for more people. So it was a really robust, wide uh, agenda. And we were able to then, through that, over the next uh, decade or so, start seeing some really powerful signature initiatives. So I'll save the journey home for the one we'll talk about in a little bit. But we were able to work in partnership with the city, the county, nonprofits to help, for example, really transform the homelessness support system across Dane County. Previously, it had been all about helping people get shelter or help. We really wanted to get people out of homelessness. So Housing First was a program that was born out of that. In our income space, we worked with uh, not only nonprofits, but also employers, as well as other individuals who were under or unemployed to really, again, transform that employment system to be able to help match different industries who needed workers with individuals who are looking for work and helping the nonprofits create a no wrong door system for employment. Again, really uh, exceptional results there, getting to family sustaining wages. And in the health area, we've been able to partner with some of our healthcare system partners like UW Health or Quartz and really help to provide um, healthcare access through the Health Connect program. And that gets um, people's premiums paid if they are- Which was revolutionary. Yeah, Yeah. Um, Sandy was telling me about that. And she was saying how how you guys implemented that and it just helps so many people. Mm -hmm. So thank you guys for that. Oh my goodness, we do it together. And that's the power of the community. So, you know, we really are, when you use the word transformational, each one of these is a really powerful collaboration in the community. And what United Way really does is takes the individual efforts of one agency or one organization or one person. We try to amplify that to make more solutions across the community. So we're accountable for our results and we make sure that we listen to the people who are most directly affected by the decisions that are being made, as well as actually driving toward that change that gets to not only helping, but hopefully to well-being and self-sufficiency overall. So what are some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome being a woman CEO? I think uh, a lot of times people don't look at you and take you seriously as a CEO. <laughs> that probably sounds a little funny. Really? You think so? Sometimes I do. And, uh, you know, not not now. Right. I think now um, people know our work. They know our results. I will say, though, when I was applying for the position, um, you know, first of all, I had my own self-doubts. Right. Why do you want to be a CEO And when I had the aha that the reason you do a job like this is because you get access to resources to actually make change, that's when it felt much more comfortable inside of me. So that was the first obstacle. Um, The second one is people would say, well, you don't look like a CEO. I don't know if you've got that CEO capability. Like, well, what does that mean exactly? You're super uh, nice. (laughs) Maybe. I always say nice and effective are not mutually exclusive. It probably is true, right? People don't think that a collaborative style, they may not think that has the most uh, effectiveness. But actually, to me, it's one of the most effective ways to make change. And uh, it's not about who gets the credit. It's about getting things done. And sometimes I think if you're not up, you know, really saying, hey, here's the stuff. Go do it this way. People don't necessarily think you're effective. That doesn't mean you're not you know, paying attention to the whole community and trying to put the pieces in the right places to actually get more done together. It's more my style. And I think that co-creation and listening is so powerful. You know, one of the things I love to say is the community always tells you what it needs if you listen. And that means a staff community. It means a larger 
communities that we support. And I think that sometimes people don't think, like I said, that style is necessarily effective or they feel like you're abdicating your responsibility as a leader. That definitely comes through sometimes. But again, I really believe in my heart and soul it is the most effective way to make change because then people feel like they can see the solution, they were a part of it. And the commitment is there to continue the work beyond just making the decision, but actually making sure you carry through the action to result. That was D. Starr, host, host of the Audited Box podcast and his conversation with United Way of Dane County CEO, Renee Moe. You can hear their full conversation wherever you get your podcasts. While all eyes are currently on Madison's 2023 budget, the Madison Metro School District met on Halloween night to pass their own budget for next year. To help break it down, Capital Times education reporter Scott Gerard sat down with WORT host Carousel Baird yesterday to explain what the budget means for Madison schools. There's so much to talk about here, but let's sort of get the big overview. As you talked about, it has to be approved by October 31st, 2021. Um, 2022 was the deadline for this coming school year. Um, and MMSD did it just on that day. Um, tell us what was approved in that budget. Yes. Yeah, so they did it on Halloween. A couple of people were even wearing costumes. So that's great fun. <laughs> um, uh, I myself handed out some candy during the meeting at home uh, while I was watching from home. So, uh, yeah, so it was a, a record setting budget in terms of its size. Uh, that is mostly attributable to uh, the, the still pretty lo- significant amount of money coming from COVID-19 relief from the federal government. And so that has uh, just put a lot more money into the district's budget uh, and allowed them to try out some initiatives and and work on some other things for now. What does that mean? I I know there was a lot of talk of, okay, phew, we've got this budget through, but there's a lot of concern that the funding is going to drastically change because of uh, one-time funding due to COVID. Yeah, so one of the biggest challenges for schools right now has been figuring out how to spend these, in, in Madison's case, tens of millions of dollars. Um, you know, the, these are uh, operations that are pretty used to, I think, operating on a tight budget. Uh, and so when you have all this money to spend, you know, the mechanisms for figuring out how to spend it aren't necessarily always there. And then on top of that, you add in the fact that it is one-time money. So it has to be spent, and depending on, there's S or one, S or two, S or three, and they all have different deadlines for when money can has to be spent by. And depending on those deadlines, you may have one year or two years to spend all of that money down. And so you not only need to find projects that are big enough to fund to spend that money on, but recognize that beyond that one or two years, you won't have that source of money. And so putting that money toward ongoing expenses. And I think the most salient example in Madison is raises for staff is not sustainable. And so it became this question of, well, this is what we want to do. Should we do it and figure it out later? Or do we not do it even though we have this money in front of us? And, and it, there's not an easy answer to that. How, so what did the school board decide? So yeah, the district, um, ended up spending, uh, they, they gave staff on base wages a 3% raise, which was a little below the maximum cost of living raise that would have been allowed. Uh, and there was also 
they spent about eight and a half million dollars of funding toward a five dollar an hour increase for a lot of hourly staff members. Um, and so, again, the, the concern with that was this may not be sustainable going forward. But now that we've set this level, we have to meet that year after year. And so there is a lot of concern, I think, um, within administration and among some school board members about what's going to happen next year, but they are going to uh, just keep giving it a, a try. And I know there's there was a lot of talk about departments looking back at their budgets and trimming wherever they can and, and looking to cut going forward so that they can maintain some of these things. So I know there was some sort of conversation about do we go back to referendum or or do was there any you know, even even if it was side talk to the to the ultimate budget vote about conversations about where this money will come from in the future. So right now, the, there there was mention of uh, going back to referendum, and and uh, board member Sabian Castro specifically has brought it up a few times just to try to I think let people know like, hey, this is something we're going to have to be considering. There wasn't talk about that for this fall or even next year. There the the November twenty twenty operating referendum is still uh, in existence and still adding money to the budget. So I don't think they would likely go back before that expires, but there, you know, it's, it's tough to say there, there wasn't a lot of specific talk about next year's budget yet. It was more, this is what we have, we feel we have to do right now. And then we need to spend this year working on how we meet this need that we've now created. And and so the budget process typically starts around January, publicly at least. I, I mean, administration behind in their offices and everything is already working it's on al- it. There's always um, budget talks, right, right. Yes. But, uh, but as far as the sort of the public conversation about it at school board meetings, that should start in January. Uh, and then they have January through June when they typically approve a preliminary budget to start operating on July 1st. And then they will do final approval in October. And were there any specific programs or changes in this budget? Or was it just trying to fund the status quo and add the, the raises that teachers and staff deserve? No, there, there were certainly some new programs. Uh, I think one of the most significant uh, is ongoing funding for early literacy uh, and new programming around teaching those youngest students how to read. Um, there were also, and, and again, this is where some of that federal relief funding comes in. They've invested in some other programs to try to see if there are things that are worth sustaining and finding funding for. Um, so there's just different initiatives at, at school-based levels. And um, then there were also investments in things like Full Day 4K. They expanded the number of sessions of that they have to, to reach more students. They added some more funding for uh, social workers. They're still well below the ideal ratio for, yeah. uh, for a social work student to social worker ratio, but they're moving in the right direction based on this budget. Um, expansions to some other programs like uh, the uh, for high schoolers getting early credits, uh, early college credits. There were some expansions. Office of Youth Reengagement, which is for students who are struggling to stay engaged at school, got some more funding. So there were there were definitely investments in a, a variety of, of programming. Um, but again, the question is how those are sustained going forward. And, and that's just not clear yet. 
Scott, one thing that I that stood out when I was um, sort of this morning re- reading all the uh, all of your reporting and and some other things online was the fact that they didn't increase the average home tax. Ex- explain that to me, how the budget has increased, but the tax levels have decreased. That is a great question. And this would be an advanced math class given the, <laughs> the state funding formula for schools. But so as I mentioned earlier, that revenue limit ultimately sets a, a maximum level that districts can take in funding through the combination of state aid and local property taxes. Uh, plus any referenda that pass. Well, what Republicans did in the last uh, last year uh, was they increased state aid to schools, but they did not raise the revenue limits. And so what that means is that, well, the state is providing more aid. That doesn't mean districts have more money to spend. It just changed where they're getting that money from. Ah, okay. And, yeah, and so... Uh, the state is providing a bit more money, which means there's a bit less of a burden on local property taxpayers through their property tax rates. And then the other uh, factor in the the tax rate itself is the equalized value, uh, an equalized tax base. And that had a significant increase in MMSD this year after there was sort of a blip last year and some issues with how things were calculated. It took a big jump this year. And so that means the average home is worth more, which means the rate necessary to tax goes gotcha. down. Then the the question to sum all of this up is, did MMSD leave money on the table? Could they have taxed homeowners more? No. No, because of that revenue limit, um, they they cannot surpass it other than what the referendum allows. And they they included that as part of the budget. What can we expect to see next from MMSD? I mean, you talked about budget conversations in in January, but are there any specific budget issues that are or or big programmatic issues that have come up? And I I know they've talked about like the big ideas, but also there's been talk about, you know, honors classes. There's been talk about, as you said, 4K. There's been talk about adding social workers. Is there anything that's really highlighting there's so many things. And, and I think one of the challenges the district is going to have is assessing what is successful and what isn't uh, just because of the number of programs that they're trying out and trying to implement. Um, you know, there's a, you mentioned a lot of conversations around some of those things, you know, I, a, a program like the, the, a discussion like the honors program conversation going on, I don't think will have a huge impact on the budget necessarily. Okay. Um, it could change certain salary designations and things like that. But overall, that's more of a policy conversation uh, than a budget conversation. But continued expansion of 4K absolutely would take more of a budget investment. Um, Ongoing investment in student mental health beyond just social workers will take a continued investment. There was just a conversation on Monday about uh, in in 2019, the board adopted a resolution uh, committing to using 100% renewable energy by 2040 with some benchmarks leading up to that. Well, there was a sort of feasibility report done that showed the costs of meeting mm-hmm. the benchmark outlined in that resolution. And it is not cheap. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Scott, so much for joining us. As always, it's great to hear what you're working on and thinking about. And we look forward to seeing your next stories covering education in the city of Madison and Dane County. 
Thank you so much for having me and for talking about education on your show. It's, it's, I love hearing any conversation about it. It's 6.53 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Well, folks, it's been a week. The path to who controls the House and the Senate took forever. And as a nation, we observed Veterans Day by honoring those who served, but then worrying how many more could serve in the future. Look, stressful times require a release of tension. So in this episode of Radio Chipstone, local textile artist Melissa Rice makes lovely work while sharing the dark places in the history of handwork with contributor Jennifer Fields. Women were like not even going to school to learn the alphabet, to learn how to read. And they were stitching these like alphabets and they they couldn't even read. And once they could complete like a finished sampler, then they were deemed worthy enough to marry and being like domestic and ready to be a wife. What is it that drew you to want to do it when it's sort of setting these antiquated notions of who women are and what women are supposed to be doing? I grew up always interested in textiles and fabrics and texture of things. And my grandmother uh, always was crocheting and knitting and stuff like that. So I learned a little bit of it from her. Um, And then it wasn't until I was older and in the 90s, the Riot girl DIY scene and all these women who were taking traditionally very feminine, very um, domestic tasks and like taking them and making them their own and making them subversive. And it started out as a hobby to pass time and ease like anxiety that I had. I was just like, okay, I need to, I need a hobby, right? I, I'm go- oh, like, oh, I remember doing embroidery when I was a kid. I'll just do that. And it started off, you know, as these generic kits that you get at the hobby store. It was like, okay, like follow this pattern and it'll turn out just like this picture. And then I was like, you know what, this is kind of boring. And Internet searches led me to all these different artists who were doing really creative, really unique things with embroidery and using different styles and dark themes and like bordering on like death and destruction and like war. And so then I was like, okay, like that's what I'm more interested in and using this traditional craft into like a form of art and expression. That's like what I'm excited about, just taking something that has been traditionally one way and just like making it into like something totally unexpected. So what did you start doing? I'm really into music and I started doing like song lyrics and like I'd be listening to a song and I'd be like, oh, I, w- I want to stitch that. And then like taking the song and thinking of like the theme of the song and matching like materials to it, like I made a piece um, that's anchored by a branch and it's just like on the scrap of like silky fabric that I felt like goes with the theme of the song. And what was the song? Uh, it's by my favorite band, Circle Takes a Square. Non-objective portrait of karma. When you look at a piece of fabric, does it sort of tell you what it wants to be? Or when you hear a particular music or you hear a song or, or your favorite band, do you start seeing that fabric and seeing that image in your head? Where, how does that all sort of come together? 
I hear or I get the inspiration somewhere and then I seek out the kind of material to like make it out of. I've done poster art for shows. I've done like record covers, something like a record that has really good art. Um, I'll take it and I'll just recreate it in embroidery thread. I'm also really inspired by like the human form. So I've like done like different body parts and like scars is, is one thing I've I actually just did one about um, my dad had carpal tunnel surgery on his hands and like seeing his stitches in his palm like reminded me of like that would be a really cool embroidery piece like a hand with with stitches in the palm and taking like embroidery thread and recreating like actual like sutures that holds like skin tissue together. There is simultaneously a delight on your face, but you also look at me like you expect me to go, oh my God, that's gross, Melissa. (laughs) So when you make that face like, what's going to happen? Do you expect people to have a reaction from your work? Yeah, yeah, I do. Like I said, like I like the juxtaposition of the dainty women's work to like something where you're just like, oh, what? (laughs) Okay, I wasn't expecting that. When something inspires me and I like, I take it and I, I want to embroider it. That's like art, and to me, that's like an expression of something of a reaction that I'm having to something else, and doing it with like the means that I know, and that's embroidery. For W O R T, I'm Jennifer Fields, and that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to W O R T's live local news at six. Your reporter tonight was Aaron Ashley. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, Carousel Baird, with a public affair, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show, Nate Buggy Hout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, don't miss an episode of The Local News. You can stream it live on the WORT app or get it as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Up next is a Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.